Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today, we're getting better acquainted with me with my dad and with my brother, with the men, I guess, of the Pickering family. It's kind of a a men's health-based episode, although, to be fair, none of the conditions talked about in this episode are specific to men. They absolutely affect women and non-binary people as much as men. It's in a different format from the way that the show generally is. It contains conversation, but it cuts between conversation and it also includes some true storytelling. So I make another podcast. Uh, I don't just make it on my own. I co-produce a podcast with my partner, Jen, called The Family Tree. And that podcast is mostly a podcast drama, but it mixes in real life interviews with the fiction in a strand of the show called the family tree cuttings in a recent episode of the family tree cuttings i talked to my dad about his experiences of dementia and i talked to my brother about being diagnosed relatively late in his life with type 1 diabetes and i thought that for people who don't listen to the family tree but do listen to getting better acquainted that these conversations would be interesting to you both my dad and my brother have been featured in previous getting better acquainted episodes and really those conversations were a kind of continuation of what I do on this podcast of having conversations with the people that I know and learning more about how they feel how they think and how they see the world however I know that some people who listen to getting better acquainted also listen to the family tree so I wanted to make sure that today's episode gives them something too so I'm I'm starting the episode with a true story that I told last week at the true storytelling night that I host in Hackney for Spark London. You can find out more about Spark London at stories.co.uk. The Hackney branch of Spark London happens on the second Monday of every month at the Hackney Attic, which is part of the Hackney Picture House. And there's another night that Spark do on the third Monday of every month upstairs at the Ritzy in Brixton. So to kick the episode off, here's me telling a story live on stage at the Hackney Attic. And I should say as well that this story and occasionally the rest of the episode will touch on mental health issues because I have anxiety and depression and if my dad is trying to live with dementia and my brother is trying to live with type 1 diabetes those are the conditions which I'm trying to live with. The night in question was around the theme of dreams. I don't remember my dreams at all. I remember remembering the dreams sometimes. Uh, Sometimes I remember that I did briefly remember it after I woken up. I'm very jealous of everybody that can dream. My partner can, you know, she's really into dreaming and and I I can't access that place. 
Uh, and I was talking to my therapist this morning, uh, NHS therapist, just to make that clear. And it's running out in, in, uh, in uh, three weeks, whether I'm better or not. So it's not kind of ideal. But yes, I've got a therapist. And I was talking to my therapist this morning uh, about the fact that I, I run a, a true storytelling night and the theme was dreams. Uh, and my therapist said to me, you've never talked about your dreams here. Uh, and I said, well, I, I don't really remember my dreams. Apart from uh, a, a dream that I had had when I was uh, a very young person, like seven or eight, I reckon. And I was living in a, a small village in North Wales uh, in a cottage. And at night, I would dream that there was this kind of pale person at the end of my bed, like all in dark clothes with a kind of pale white face. And I was petrified. I was terrified of this, of this apparition that I saw every, every night. Uh, and I couldn't move. And I was just kind of locked in a, a, a sort of stasis looking at this figure. And then one night I realized I could, I could make that, that apparition go away if I just opened my eyes and woke up. And I, I remember doing that, and I woke up, and this apparition disappeared. Now, later in life, I found out, because my partner's really into dreams, uh, that uh, I was probably experiencing a form of, of sleep paralysis that a lot of people experience all across the world. Like, that's where incubuses and succubuses come from uh, as ideas. And there's kind of lots of, like, in, in, in Africa, there's the tokolosh in South Africa. Um, so so like, there's the, that's a thing that happens. People get these kind of paralysis things, and they see these weird apparitions in front of them they're dreaming but they're still um they're awake but they're asleep you 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 can't move um and but I broke that that dream that sleep paralysis and it and it's never come back since that's the last kind of dream that I properly remember um and I think it's a kind of significant thing for me that I didn't tell anyone I was having that bad dream like that was a secret I dealt with that kind of sleep monster on my own I vanquished it I made the decision to to open my eyes no one else knew about it I kept it to myself and I dealt with it now that's not necessarily been a good pattern for my life in my behaviors but we'll get to that so around about the same time another thing happened to me that was like a dream it wasn't a dream but I went to my small village in North Wales uh, which was at the top of the hill like it was so small it was was such a small village that uh, basically we knew that there'd been a, a massive increase in population when we kind of went from having a, a taxi to take us all up to the, to the village school uh, and it changed into a minibus. Like that was like, whoa, things are getting big around here. Um, and so we went up, I went up to this small village school or town school because it was in the town at the top of the hill. And I went into the assembly that we were all called into just expecting a small Welsh village school. And in that assembly room, there was a teepee assembled and there was a cowgirl uh, who was was like walking around the teepee and there was a Native American chained to the teepee Uh, and we were all sat down and this was like wow what is happening this is amazing this is strange and we were all sort of sat down and we listened to that cowgirl tell us about how great Americans were and how great the wild west had been and how brilliant it was and then she left the room before she left the room she threw some food on the floor too far for this uh, Native American to reach and then she left the room and the the Native American started to say could you give us give give me the food and explained like the actual reality of what the wild west was like Uh, and all of the kids kind of like we were all looking at each other what should we do and I was like right I'm getting that food and I'm giving that to that human being and I got up I picked up the food gave it to the Native American and 
then, you know, the cowgirl came out and the teachers came out and it was like, that was the that was what was supposed to happen. Someone was supposed to stand up and do this. And it was explained that this was a theatre and education uh, thing. You know, it was like I hadn't gone mad. It was, just, it was a theatre and education event. Uh, and that moment, that, that experience, it made me fall in love with theatre and storytelling and kind of magical realism as well, I think, on one level. Like what, things which seem real, but then they're a completely different thing. And it also it awoke in me a lot of political kind of ideas that I've, I've kind of built on since then about, you know, uh, sharing food. I mean, let's face it, that person may not have actually been a Native American playing that Native American. It may have been hella pro- problematic. But for me, it had a kind of actual, uh, actual kind of political feeling. But significantly, I stepped forwards and I got that food. Nobody else did. And I learned that I got kind of uh, rewarded for being the person who steps up and deals with the problems, deals with the situation. Now, after eight, I moved to Coventry and my family life went to shit. Like, there was loads of emotional abuse and often physical abuse. It was a brutal time. And after that, then I moved again to Cardiff. My family life got a little bit better, but school life went to shit and it was really brutal and I was uh, systematically bullied by the school and I was kind of given a nickname and everywhere I went, people spat at me. It was fun times. And when those kind of, those years happened... Um, uh, like I, uh, I didn't realise that what the way I coped with it was always to keep everything inside, to not really sh- even know what my own feelings were, like to be so unaware of how I felt. Like in my home life, I was always trying to get different people to see each other's side and and actually get on and see each other's position, and I wasn't actually understanding that I was angry and sad and hurt and upset. And like, who the fuck cares about these other people getting together? I had emotions that I wasn't. Paying any attention to and so that's what kind of came up when I said to my therapist this morning about this dream that like the the dreams that I've got like both my creative dreams uh, like the good things the things I still aspire to like if I look at my creative life like I think I want collectives but I always feel responsible for every single thing like I cannot chill out like I host this night I don't produce it but I get here first before anyone else does I worry about all the little things at the same time I don't want any of the team to think that I don't respect them and think that they're so I'm really worrying about their emotions worrying about everybody's emotions apart from myself and I just cannot trust that people will actually have me like I've done theatre for all my life and I've never done that trust exercise where you fall back and you're caught by people because I don't trust people to catch me Um, and so thinking about dreams and thinking about all of these things I want to kind of change that in myself. I want to learn to trust people and I want to actually learn to look at my own emotions and even recognize what they are rather than just react to them, which can be terribly damaging for me and for the people around me. So as I mentioned at the start of the show, my partner Jen and I make the podcast The Family Tree. And if you don't already listen to it, then I really recommend that you do. Before I play you some clips from The Family Tree cuttings, here is a little bit of promo about The Family Tree itself. My name's Dave Pickering, and I'm an award-winning podcast maker. You may have heard me featured on Radio 4 or see me in The Guardian. I'm known for making intimate and personal work, both as a storyteller and as an in-conversation podcaster. 
A couple of years ago, I decided to turn all of that on its head and together with my partner, Jenny Adamthwaite, began creating a magical realist podcast drama series called The Family Tree, which blurs the line between fantasy and reality. Season one began with the character of me interviewing a family about the mysterious circumstances surrounding a death. But slowly, it took us in different and often very surprising directions. Season two is now well underway, and to be honest, it's hard to tell you much about it without giving you all kinds of spoilers. What I can tell you is that it mixes together fiction and non-fiction through drama, comedy, conversation, mystery, confession, history and culture. And it includes interviews with real people from podcasting, media, politics, science, religion and the arts. Real life guests have included Helen Zoltzman, Nikesh Shukla and Marlo Mack, creator of the podcast How To Be A Girl. The Family Tree explores themes around identity, family, change and belief. And it contains brilliant performances by super talented people from a broad range of performance backgrounds, including stand-up, acting and spoken word. The Family Tree is difficult to categorise, but reference points include Sense8, Ghostwatch, S-Town, Leftovers, The Bright Sessions and WTF with Mark Maron. We recommend starting at the beginning of season one for the full experience, but you could also jump into season two without getting too lost. You can find out more about the show at thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk and you can listen to it there through Apple Podcasts or through any of the other online podcast directories. So join me for one of the strangest stories that I've ever told. As I mentioned at the start of the show, the two conversations that you're going to hear will cut between each other. We're going to cut between me talking to my dad and me talking to my brother. I recorded with my brother in a cafe, which is occasionally noisy. So background sound fans, that's something for you. One thing I do want to make super clear is that the family tree generally the story of the family tree that isn't in the cuttings is fictional and one of the fictions in that show is the idea of what in the world of the show is called a changeling which is a kind of entity of some kind that takes the shape of other things and absorbs their memories. The reason I flagged that up is that me and my dad We'll talk about changelings quite a lot in relation to his experiences of dementia. And you should know that they're absolutely fictional, but that my dad's dementia and his feelings around changelings are absolutely not fictional. So I'm back in my dad's flat, which is a place that I spend quite a lot of time. And I'm talking to my dad, who people will remember from season one of The Family Tree. Hello, Dad. Hello. There's a thread in the family tree called The Cuttings where we talk to people, uh, experts. It occurred to me that you're kind of an expert in some of the stuff that comes up in the family tree, partly because you're always telling me that you're actually a changeling, uh, even though you're, you're obviously not a changeling. So when you say you're a changeling, what do you mean? Well, I simply mean that I have changed that my life now, life is life to me is life number two. It's a difference that, that from the age... Well, from literally from sort of when I was became conscious of life and that, you know, year one or something, until I was 87, 
I lived the same life, which was to me a life of normality within Earth's existence. But then I began to deteriorate physically, and then I became demented. And at that point, as my neurons began to collapse or whatever, I actually moved into a second life, which is what the life I'm living now. I am not the person that I was before I was 87. I mean, that's something that I can observe too. You're a different person from the person I first met. When I first started to be fully aware of you as a fully rounded person, I don't know when that was, sometime in my childhood, but but since then, you've definitely changed. But then when I think about your life, you know, you're 93, and I feel like you've been a lot of different people, really, like not just the before dementia and the after dementia. You've also been lots of different people through your life, like very different uh, life circumstances. To me, though, within that, they were all within that that sort of normality of earthly existence. Of course, I changed within it, as everyone does. I, I varied, you know, but it was on the basis of that original life. The change was within the life, not from it to another. Right, and so you really do feel like you're a, like... a different person. I do feel I'm a different person. It's it's complicated, really, because obviously changelings, if you're a changeling, you would have the memory of being lots of different people uh, or lots of different things, rather, lots of different animals and creatures and things like that. You'd have all extra memories, whereas you don't have extra memories because your problem is memory. You're losing your memory. Yes, my problem is memory, yes. But it's much greater than memory. It extends beyond it. I'm not the same. Per- I'm not living the same life, but being unable to remember it, I've moved out of it and can't remember. I can remember that I lived a, f- a first life, but I can't remember very much. I can. Re- I fail to remember within it. And I mean, that's the thing. Like, it seems to me that you're a new person in your view. You can remember bits of fragments yes. of who you were. Yes. And they, I guess you... Ex- all the time, because it's my first life, which I believe has validity, which I, I, I wish that I had not moved from it. One of the ways that you might feel your life is and your situation is similar to that of someone who's a changeling is that they kind of get these bits of memories from different creatures that they've been or different people that they've been or whatever and those kind of interfere or confuse their current life like they remember being that but they also don't remember being that and I guess that's that's partly how you're experiencing memory now yes that would be so yeah yes first of all what's your name and how would you describe yourself it's Tony and I'm your brother I'm an illustrator, really focused on medicine and patient-practitioner interface, I suppose. What is type 1 diabetes? So I'm new to this, but type 1 diabetes, it's an autoimmune disease. Basically, your body starts attacking your insulin-producing cells, which are your beta cells in your pancreas, which effectively means that you don't produce insulin, which means glucose in your bloodstream, well, you can't use it, basically. So it builds up and builds up and builds up. If you, if you don't treat it with insulin, you will fall into what they call a diabetic coma, or you'll get something called ketoid acidosis, which has wonderful side effects like issues with your, your, your pancreas, your liver, can lead to issues with your nerve endings and, and amputation and stuff like that. But we have insulin now, so if you do treat it, you can live a perfectly normal life, although you do have to watch out for, for hyperglycemia. 
Yeah, I mean, and when you say you're new to it, I mean, you're new to it in that you have it, but you have only recently found out about it, and you're also somebody who's making work about it. So you're answering both as somebody who experiences this condition, but also somebody who is kind of making work and sort of looking into the science around it. I was, I was diagnosed about uh, just over a year ago, which is very strange for type 1 diabetes in the first place. And yeah, I've been doing research and I've been doing work about it and trying to find out about it in different ways. But, yeah, new to it because there's still a hell of a lot left to know. I mean, I'm talking about terms like beta cells and T cells and ketoid acidosis and stuff like that. And these are phrases that I didn't know what they were a year ago. You think about something like glucose and you think about sugar in your bloodstream. Well, actually, no, it's not. It's, your normal human body turns it into something called glucogen, which it stores and then dispenses it when it needs it my body won't do that you're talking about things like your relationship with your body like i don't i can't trust my body anymore i have to keep monitoring it i have to test it i have to check on it and things like that there's a lot of different ways of thinking about it that that's what i'm, I'm doing in my work i'm trying to understand really how somebody who is a patient benefits from understanding the science and benefits from from managing it there are examples of type 1 diabetics who do amazing things i'm thinking steve redgrave but i also know that there are lots of people who suffer from horrendous hypoglycemia hypos as you'll hear me refer to it as and that's when your blood sugar drops so low and again you can end up in a coma normally this this is a disease diagnosed before the age of 18 in fact it used to be called juvenile diabetes and the idea of of, of dealing with type 1 diabetes as a, as a teenager is something that I'm in awe of because doing it as a middle-aged guy I'm finding it tough enough as it is so I can imagine that, that with, without that, that sort of understanding of yourself and the world it would be a completely different experience. How do you experience memory now? I mean, how would you describe the process of of remembering something now? It depends what it is. If it's something a very, very long time ago, I will probably remember some aspect of it or something, but will not be able to expand from that into a general overall understanding of it. That's one failure of the of um, you see I've forgotten the name of what I was. dementia dementia yes that is one of the failings of dementia the other one of course is the more immediate one where you forget actually very literally you forget almost instant memory so that when you were in a conversation you 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 remember what you started the conversation about or something and then you suddenly. You're in the middle of that conversation. You can't remember what that was. This is very annoying throughout life. Right. So when you're thinking about anything, you can never guarantee that you will have a sort of coherent relationship to it, which you do have if you have memory. When did you realise that things had changed in terms of your memory? And You say to people a lot, you know, that you're demented or you have dementia, which is true, you do have those things. But demented sounds different from someone experiencing dementia. Uh, so that's a bit of a surprise to people. But also when you first started thinking about it, you thought you had Alzheimer's, which you don't have. Yes. Well, it has many of the characteristics of Alzheimer's. Words don't matter. What what it's called doesn't matter. Your experience is much more important. But I went to the memory clinic with you, and the, I remember the doctor saying, you know, someone with Alzheimer's doesn't come in and say, do I have Alzheimer's? That's not generally a process that someone with Alzheimer's goes through. But they looked at your brain, they scanned your brain, and they found that you'd had a couple of strokes, or at least one stroke, and that you were experiencing a mild form of dementia, is what they yeah. said of it at the time 
time. I, yeah. I, I appreciate that it's deteriorated since then. I agree with that. Yeah. Do you remember, I mean, this is it's such a funny thing to, to ask, isn't it? Like asking people to remember when they stopped being able to remember something is almost a kind of paradox. But do you remember what it was first like when you first started to think that you were getting dementia or, or suspecting that you might have Alzheimer's that, that moment? What, what do I remember how I felt at the time or what I thought about it? Both, yeah. I can't remember. I really can't remember. I'm sure I was preoccupied by it, but uh, I can't remember what I thought about it at the time, you know, whether I thought it was the beginning of something that was going to get worse or whether I thought it was something that could be got rid of. I can't remember at all about that. Type 1 diabetes is thought to be a genetic condition, but no one else in your family seems to have it, which is a strange thing for me to, to say to you as one of the members of that family. Um, how do you feel about that? Uh, I, I mean, I, it was the, one of the questions that was most asked when I was being diagnosed, Who is anyone else in the family who's got it? Is there anything like that? I know that it can be genetic. I also know that it, can, it, it doesn't have to be, because clearly it's not for me. They don't really know whether it's a genetic thing, whether it's caused. They know there's a difference between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. And as I say, the, the key thing with type 1 diabetes is it's, it's this autoimmune disease. It's, it's your body turning on you or, or changing in some way. Uh, for me, it's, 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 as I say, it's, it's, it's strange for that. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I've tried not to think about the, the genetic implications. I, I, because, do you know what? I, I don't know whether could have been changed a lot of research says there's there's no way of knowing about it you go back far enough people only found out about diabetes because they they tasted the, the sugar in the pee it used to be called the pissing evil by the way for me the, the focus is dealing with it the focus is not about where, where it's come from it's what's going to happen now no, that makes sense. I mean, I guess in terms of genetics, it might have been in the family, but like a, reg- a regressive gene that kind of combines with another regressive gene and all of this sort of stuff. As you say, it might be a completely different thing. We don't really know about this condition fully yet. It could be that you have pushed your body too far. It could be that you haven't. As far as I know, in terms of what I've been reading so far about type 1 diabetes, the impression I've got is that there's no, no way you could predict it. There's no way you could have prevented it or anything like that. It's It's part of you. It's... It's your body has has this deficiency. Right. The pancreas can't be bothered. So from that point of view, it, it very much is something that you you have and you're stuck with and you you, you deal with because it, it's a part of you. But it's interesting because it does fundamentally change the way you think about your body. You you've had to form new routines you've had to change the way that you do so many things you know you've only known about this just over a year, yeah. just over a year. and you know already like I'm seeing how much it's fundamentally changing how you go through the world yeah um I, I guess I, I want to be as spontaneous and as flexible as possible but that takes a hell of a lot of planning which is the, it's the bitter irony you know if to, to be a spontaneous to, to be in a situation where you can have those things which I want to have I want to have a life that's like that you have to get up every morning and you have to plan for the eventualities that you might have to do. It's like a massive game of chess all the time. Plus, there's a hell of a lot more maths when it comes around to food. You, you, you can you think on your feet, but you've got to know how to think on your feet. I mean, how has dementia changed you? How would you describe its change on you? Oh. It's changed so many, many things, so much about me. It's almost completely changed me. 
there's a sort of there's always this attempt to go back to life one there's always this attempt to so and occasionally you know there are there are, there are remembrances occasional remembrances or partial remembrances of what it was like to be like that but most of the time i can't even remember that you know i i i just have to try to live with what i am I mean, it's interesting that you descri- describe it like that, though, because what I experience coming and meeting with you, because I come to your house every day, to this flat pretty much every day, and when we talk, I find that you are kind of almost a memory machine in that you will, like, a lot of the time you're describing lots of, like, moments in your life, you're going over them. Yeah, you forget things about them, but you, yeah. but you can't stop going back to memories quite often. No, I mean, it's what I wanted. No, I am totally preoccupied occupied with trying to be remember or be or whatever with the life that it the life that was right yes i mean that that is one of the strange things that i find about dementia certainly for me i wouldn't can't generalize it but that um i forgot what i was going to say i forgot this well the strange what happens all the time you're in the middle of talking and then you suddenly you you totally lose what you're talking about. Right. I mean, and that's something that's familiar to me or to you in life one. Like, we, we all have moments when we lose what we're talking about, but it happens at such a frequency. And it's not just that you forgot, you forget the whole context, not just the word or the... No, it's total. It's absolutely total. Uh, you know, like I was suddenly thinking of then of something I wanted to say to you. And then I can't remember what it was. It go. It, it's not actually that you can't remember. What happens is you remember, you 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 reach out for something, and it sort of goes away from you. It's not like sort of not remembering it. It's 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 very strange. The act of trying to remember something sometimes has the opposite effect of pushing it away. Right. Whereas when you aren't trying to remember something, when you're just sitting with me, you often can't stop yourself from remembering things you go off on on into the into the past and you get interested in some experiences but then you get frustrated when you then you start to reach for them you start to reach for what you want to remember and that's when you can't remember the things yes yes that's that's true you're making art out of your experience of living with and being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes can you talk about the process and the motivation for you doing that I'm starting my master's in illustration and originally I thought I was going to be doing stuff like children's books and things like that and and storytelling of of some sort and I did a module on sci-art and realised that the biggest connection I had to science was to do with medicine and to do with how it was affecting me and wanted to chronicle that and journal it and as always I've found my writing was not quite satisfying in that sort of sense so the the strategy I've come up with is to graphically depict it, to illustrate it, to, to do a comic of the experience but also to do images that interrogate how I feel about that. I've done one of T-cells as a sequence of police brutality because to some extent that's what the security force is turning on its citizens is in a way. But it's, it's very much about me coming to terms with understanding who I am because this is the idea of what I think of as medical identity, how medicine, how health affects your identity or your perception of your identity. Right. I mean, I've got some experience of that too in terms of mental health issues being something that like now are part of my identity. Yeah. And like it was good to get 
a diagnosis in a way, although I self-diagnosed. Now I've got an official diagnosis, which is not the same as mine, but it's, it's a diagnosis. And it's good to have those words to use about yourself, to explain your experience. But at the same time, those words also feel like straitjackets that kind of trap you in certain kinds of ways or, or represent you to other people in ways that you wouldn't necessarily want to be represented. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why I want to be really quite clear that I am finding this stuff out as I go along, you know, because I read some information about it, some paper about it, and then that might be changed. And I know that medicine is constantly evolving and being rethought as well. So I know what's working for me. And I know that diabetes affects different people in massively different ways. So that you're not necessarily in a position to say, oh, I've got that. This is, how, well, this is what you need to do. Because different people's bodies work in different ways. So things like exercise that can mess around with you. So I have a day when I'm doing walking around or doing stuff that will change what I need to do. And different people's bodies will respond in different ways to that. So your process of identity is a constant sense of renegotiation. You know, some days I can, I can, I can get to a meal and I can, I've, I've done enough exercise, I don't need any insulin. Other days I can have exactly the same meal, but I've done no exercise or the wrong sort of exercise because lifting versus cardio does different things to your body. Lifting will actually raise your blood sugar, whereas cardio will drop it. So there's different things you need to watch out for. Your, your sense of identity is a constant process of renegotiation with what is going on around you and the outside world. And it's part of what, why you're making kind of art about it. It's part of that to help other people who don't know what type 1 diabetes is, either people who have it like yourself or people like me who don't, know, who don't have it and, and might want to know about it. I'd like to think I was that open-minded and open-hearted. I think primarily it starts from me trying to understand myself because I am that narcissistic but I think once you start creating something that's external to you that's other than, than you then that's when you start communicating I haven't set out to create art that is this is what type 1 diabetes is all about because other people are better qualified to do that mine is to say this is what my diabetes is like maybe that helps you I think that's a quite a, a sensible attitude to have like it's not prescriptive and that's a lot of the time in, in medical situations these conditions can be treated like one thing and everybody goes oh that's how you deal with it and uh, everybody's body is different and everybody's mind is different in how they want to deal with these things yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say that you really identify or you see yourself as a changeling because it's a little bit like Alzheimer's. It's like there are crossovers with what you're experiencing between being a changeling and being you, but you seem to be like an, almost an anti-changeling to me. You can't remember. The changelings I know are kind of cursed by these memories, remembering different versions of their experience that are nothing to do with them, a tree or a, or a bird or a, or a plant or whatever, whereas you you have no memory. You can't remember the human that you were, whereas the changelings seem to be quite often turned tortured by the the animals, the non-humans that they have been. But then I am technically not a changeling. I mean... That's right. Uh, Just like you technically don't have Alzheimer's. But, I, you know... Yeah, you're talking metaphorically when you say you're a changeling. Yeah, yes. Which? Absolutely, yeah. It's a complicated thing when your life is made into a a metaphor for somebody else's life, but I can see the connections too. I mean, have you learned anything from your experiences of dementia and old age? Have I learned anything? I find it hard to answer that question learnt, I mean, I've obviously learnt about dementia to an extent from from operating within it, 
No, I think I wish I had learned things. I am not learning things. I can. I am continually thinking about myself. This is one of the th- factors of dementia. Yes, you. You are not. You. You get into a situation, a controversial situation, where the controversy gets totally lost always in your thinking about the way you're handling it or the way you're trying to deal with it, not about the actual subject. You're seeing yourself in relation to it. What do you mean when you say a controversial thing? Well, if you're having a sort of objective conversation with somebody else... You're actually thinking about the way that you're having the conversation, not the conversation. Right. So the form rather than the content. How how are you saying it rather than and if you're if you know what's happening rather than what's happening. Yes. Yes, definitely the form rather than the content. Absolutely. Right. And and also I guess that's that's not just dementia that does that as well. Like old age in general has made you less mobile. It means you have to think about things that you never had to think about. Just like reaching out for something is a more complicated, you know, picking up your mug from the side of you is a more complicated thing than it was. Think about things which were just you you were were not thought, not things you thought about were automatic things. Yeah. Yes. This this I suppose this does become true in old age generally. But uh, but you could have one could have continued with one's life into old age even without those kind of problems that you just referred to. But beyond that, you could have still be continuing the first life, the life that you were in. Right. Like you know, uh, yeah. I, I don't think I'm continuing it now. Right. I mean, the same way that young people become become disabled, but they're still, if you lose your, well, like Mark did, if you lose a limb, you're still yourself. You're changed by the experience. You have to deal with the fact that you haven't got a limb, but you're, you, you, you are, you are the person who is dealing with that experience. Yeah. Whereas you don't feel like you're even the person that you were trying to deal with these kind of mobility issues or anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. When I think about you, I often kind of describe you as a time traveller. I guess I describe everyone as time travellers, but you're the person who's brought that idea across to me the most. You know, you were 58 when I was born, so you've always been from a different time. You're someone who was in the Second World War that I was studying in history at school. You know, you lived in that time and been through that time. You've been through the 60s. You've travelled through to the 80s with Thatcher. You've been through time and you can report to me what those times were like. And that's why I see you as a time traveller. What do you think about the idea of of you being a time traveller as people? People being time travellers. It's true, but I'm not so sure that I could give you the same view that I would have given you, looking back on them. Right. No, that's true. I mean, I've well, I've known you before dementia and after dementia, and I can I, I can agree and 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 co-author that information. Like definitely now, you when you go back, you tell different things. Sometimes you tell new bits of story that I didn't know. But you have not got the the same ability to like pluck out a full moment in time and communicate your experience of it to me in as rich detail and vibrancy and accuracy as you used to. I haven't even got the ability to formulate it necessarily as as accurately as I did. I work in sound, right? I, I work in capturing capturing moments, capturing 
capturing time, capturing memory, capturing all of these things, locking them down. Um, but I'm very well aware that, you know, you can record on a sound card and then lose everything and it will become yeah. ephemeral and kind of you had it and then you've lost it, which I guess is kind of a little bit like the way that you process the world now. You, yeah. You're storing it on a sound card, but then often the sound card disappears. Get, yeah, disappears or breaks. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Can you describe how it felt to receive the diagnosis? I've done a couple of pages about this recently as well. It was incredibly weird. The, the biggest sensation I had was, and I mean this without any flippancy, was, was, oh. Because I didn't know. I hadn't expected it. I hadn't expected the form of it. You know, I first thought that given my age and my, my general health, I probably would have had type 2 diabetes. But again, that showed how ignorant I was about type 2 diabetes as part of anything else. And I was told I had type 1 diabetes. My first response was, okay, so this is going to require some management. And I think my first response is to, is to kind of think, oh, how can I do with this? And then afterwards, it starts to sip in, you know, to drip in. There are going to be some serious issues. This is a good example because hyperglycemia it can actually cause you to start babbling and talking in all sorts of different ways so if i'm making no sense now this could be because i'm having a hypo mate right you want to watch out for that but that in itself causes a fair degree of anxiety or a questioning of what you're doing in in a public role when you're talking to people that capacity to to interact as you would want to do those sorts of fears those sorts of realizations I only accessed when I was going through it. I didn't access. I didn't sit there and go, oh my God, this is going to change my world. It was like, okay, I need to start doing this. What are the practical things I can do? Because that's what I do. I go into sort of like, oh, let's, let's try and manage this situation before anything else. And only afterwards do you start to process. There is an emotional, there is a psychological impact to doing that that happens afterwards. So, yeah, I think my first response, I mean, I've just basically drawn myself looking pretty numb and vacant because... Actually, I don't think I was feeling. You know, it was a kind of... I don't want to say it was out of body. It was a very inner body experience. But it was a... Okay, we can do this. And you have to think about your body now. Like, that's... I, I don't like to think about my body. I don't imagine you do. But, like, you're having to deal with, like, the blood, internal organs, how things work. Yeah. And, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not a great fitness person or stuff like that I, I've now started to try and make sure I do exercise a bit more I walk a lot more I, I'm, I'm a bit more energetic I think the, the most important thing about me it's not it's not a, it's not a physical sensation of oh this is my body it's more of a it's like my body's a, a badly behaved child and you've got to watch out for it you, you know you, you've, you've got to you've got to you've got to set the parameters you've got to make sure that it's doing the right thing at the right time and when it's not you've got to help it but it's a mischievous little sod as well and it will do its own thing and it will suddenly decide that you know you've got nervous that day and your adrenaline rush has flown out so that's completely screwed up what you thought was going to happen or you've had some alcohol and 12 hours afterwards your body decides that it's going to drop your blood sugar because of that so those sorts of things will you know they'll, they'll happen but you, you, you monitor it so I, I guess this sense of control over your body or control over when things will or won't happen that's similar to some of the stuff you've been looking at as well i mean you have to trust the i suppose it's a will i don't want to rephrase nietzsche but it is a kind of will to power thing it's a kind of like i will determine how the reality is going to be because i don't know when it's going to be or what it's going to be so i i will determine it by preparing for everything because yeah. there is there's is no sort of control 
No, it's interesting. I mean, I think, and I think you are right. There is kind of crossover between kind of CBT techniques and like thinking about uh, men- your mental health all the time mm-hmm. and being kind of conscious and mindful and all this stuff. So I guess we've already touched on this a little bit, but how has being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes changed you? I've done a lot more maths. Um, <laughs> you have to work out the carbohydrate level in your food, and that's your obvious carbs, but it's also in vegetables and things like that. And then you've got to work out your, your insulin ratio based on how many carbs you're having it. And at the moment, I have three different insulin ratios depending on the time of the day. I actually have more than that because it, if I've got an active day or a, an inactive day, that will change things as well. So, for example, at lunch today, I had chips and an omelette, and I worked out that was around about 60 grams of carbohydrate because it was a reasonable portion of chips, and there was some vegetable in my omelette. So I'm on a ratio of 50 to 1, so I had one unit. On a normal day, like yesterday, I had 45 grams and I had no units because I knew I was walking a lot further. So you have to be aware of these sort of things as, you, as you're doing it. Right. And I'm quite lucky at the moment because I'm still what they call honeymooning. In other words, I still have little bits of insulin and C-peptide and all these wonderful things. Still, I'm using up the fumes of my body, basically, which means that that's why I can have relatively low insulin levels at the moment. could also be to do with the drugs trial I'm on as well. So, you know, but then I'm, that could equally be nothing, so... And have you learned anything about yourself from your experiences with type 1 diabetes? Yeah, I'm probably a bit more fragile than I thought. <laughs> no, I'm, I've, I've done well in terms of keeping my blood sugars sorted out. But, you know, I have mood swings when I have a hypo or I have mood swings when I'm anxious and I kind of resent that. I would say confidence is something that I put on more than have because you don't want to step back and think, oh, I, I shouldn't do this anymore. At the same time, you genuinely don't want to do stuff. So, for example, I'll do my blood tests and I'll do my injections quite openly. That doesn't always feel good, but my attitude is going to be, well, if I get embarrassed about it, if I shy away, if I find there's a problem with it, then it's just going to let everyone else have that same attitude. It has changed me, definitely. I don't know whether that's good or bad. And I, I think also I'm lucky that I've been doing my master's this year because it's given me a degree of flexibility. When I re-enter the real world, I don't know what's going to happen then, so we'll have to see. Thinking about the way that you do your injections, when that happens, it kind of reminds me of, of how I feel when someone breastfeeds in public. It's like perfectly reasonable and, and that's how it should happen. But my, my instinct is like, just look, at the, look in their eyes, pretend this isn't happening because I don't want to make you feel like you are doing something wrong. Um, so I get a load of anxiety around making you like feel outcast at the same time as you're probably feeling outcast but hiding it uh, it's just quite interesting yeah. how has having this disease disability made you feel in relation to other people I mean, would you even use either of those words to describe it i mean diabetes potentially is a, is a fatal disease if, if we didn't have insulin which has made it a chronic disease it would be a fatal disease you go back to before the beginning of insulin and look at some of the images of people with diabetes it's horrific it's genuinely horrific but how does it make me feel different to other people yeah, or okay. it's a condition definitely it's it's a disease is it a disability it can be and not necessarily for myself but i know that some people do and i know that if you have diabetes and you have a sick day for a lot of people that that is genuinely debilitating and it's not like oh uh, it's a bit of a cold i'm going to go home or anything like that at the same time this is something that can be managed but that in itself takes a fair bit of strain or at least planning different to other people yeah, I mean, you know, when you do the when you do the the, the the tests and things like that, of course you feel different. Of course you're aware that 
other people are not doing the same thing daft little things like if I've been in a meeting in the morning and then a meeting in the afternoon and then someone puts on something over lunch I start panicking because I was like I can't do that or we're going to have to sort out food and if we're going to sort out food then we're not doing a meeting because I'm going to spend 10 minutes or so working out the maths first and you can do what the hell you want to do I think it's made me feel slightly more bullshit possibly resentful to other people but also resentful to myself for feeling like that so it does create a distance and it's but it's it's possibly more of a psychological one than it is a physical one yeah it's interesting you, you saying that now i'm thinking as well has it maybe slightly empowered you to be selfish to put yourself first like you are someone who i would say quite often don't advocate for your own needs or your own self i feel like the last couple of times i've seen you you've been much more like no i need to do this i need to do that and it kind of gives you an excuse to sort of stand up for yourself yeah i, I think I, I, I kind of feel I, I have a right to anger issues that maybe I've, I've not dealt with in the past. Um, so, yeah, from that point of view, yeah, maybe. But, yeah, I'm more assertive, I think, about certain things. Probably feel less guilty about saying no to certain things now, which could be good things. And I guess it does put a sense of perspective in terms of if I can't get this done, is that the most important thing in the world to me? No, it's not. At the same time, there are, there are things I want to achieve and, there, and it gets in the way of that. So, you know that can be a bit of a bugger too yeah you know if i want to work for six to eight hours straight without eating or anything like that no that's not going to happen yeah, yeah no i'm not suggesting it's empowered you in every way but it's interesting to note that there like are some elements where it's kind of given you an ability to advocate for yourself even if you can't do as much that you you know you can't advocate for as many things as you might have done <laughs> before this because you can't do as many things so how do you feel about the representation of old age and dementia and and people like you in fiction drama and the media wait a minute how do i feel about the representation of old age and dementia i don't know really but i would assume that the people writing that would be living within the normality of normal earthly existence and so that their vision of uh, the accuracy of what they were looking at in the, the demented individuals they were considering should be as accurate as things are within normal life. Well, though, I mean, many many people would say that that the, the, the often the media and art and things like this get get things very wrong, misrepresent people yes. very badly. Yes, but it's a misrepresentation within the kind of large context of kind of normality. The sort of what I call the normality of earthly existence. I don't know. I mean, why do you call it the normality of earthly existence? Uh, Can we unpick that phrase a little bit? Well, that's just a phrase that I found when when I was writing about Esther Ann and, and... Esther Ann, uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with that, is a, a, a picture that my dad talks to. She's in the room with us, but she's only a printout here. There's an actual, uh, there's an actual painting of her up in Willowbridge where you first met her, right? Which is where my my older sister lives. Um, and you talk to Esther Ann about existence, yeah. uh, and I guess Esther Ann has helped frame your understanding of of. Yeah. Of dementia, of consciousness, of who you are now. Yes, except that I don't know that Esther Ann, I mean, the, the, the picture of Esther Anne is just a picture. And there's a painting, and I have photographs of the painting, which I've brought back 
but I'm not talking to that painting or that picture, or I'm not even aware who she, who, who she is or what she is. She's somebody who's dead. I mean, she died some time ago, and uh, I seem to have some connection with something which, is, which her picture doesn't represent, but offers. So it's inexplicable in a way, but it's, you know, I, it's something I'm trying to deal with again. <laughs> I mean that yeah I mean that that relationship is with with this kind of memory of the past of like this kind of representation of a person it's there's so many things removed I guess that that probably speaks to your experience of of dementia of memory of the way that things connect but disconnect at the moment in a way it does yes but in another way it's this whole question of spirituality and materiality really with which it's not something which is within the area open to knowledge. Knowledge is the sort of great thing of earthly existence. I mean, knowledge is what science preaches as, as the ultimate understanding. I mean, I have great admiration for science and great belief in it. But I also think that scientism is sometimes wrong. Well, I mean, there's there's nothing that doesn't say that more to me than than the experience of people who are changelings like changelings don't make any scientific sense i mean not to say not to say that i don't think that they will make scientific sense i think we can investigate them and and, and find ways that they make sense well maybe they make sense of science maybe they'll change science more than science will change them i think so science knowledge there's something more you believe well there's belief and imagination uh, are not knowledge but they exist. Well, for me, it's just a, the whole deal of the idea of the guru rather than God of a great unknown other. It, I would totally agree with science that, that there is no God. Well, no, no, I wouldn't agree with science there is no God. I, I would say that one cannot know whether there's a God because some things are outside knowledge. One is unable to to, to make experiments, to, to formulate hypotheses and then experiment, prove or disprove them. That can only be done where you can in a material world that we live in. How do you feel about the representation of type 1 diabetes in fiction, drama and the media? It's quite hard to say because type 1 diabetes doesn't get the same sort of commentary that type 2 does. I mean, type 2, there's a lot of issues in terms of the way it's presented in the media. Type 1, you know, I can think of a few people, I think, is it Nick Jonas, who's type 1 diabetic, and he's an American singer, Dave, right? I know, uh, Okay, okay. I just didn't know he had diabetes. Yeah, I Steve Redgrave, as far as I know, and, of course, Theresa May. I don't know about the media, but when I've talked about it to people, the overriding image people have of type 1 diabetes is somebody in the class who got to eat a Mars bar when they didn't at schools. Right, because presumably the kid was having a hypo and he damn well needed a Mars bar or he had to eat at a certain point in the time. That seems to be the way that people talk about it more. In terms of diabetes, I think type 1 diabetes is about 13% of, of all diabetes that's out there. What I do see, I think, probably on social media is the focus is on positivity. Often people working hard on going to the gym or eating in a correct sort of way. The temptation is for people who've got type 1 diabetes to feel that, that they want to do something about it. And at the same time, there is a perception that if it goes wrong, then it's their fault. It's our fault. If I'm having bad blood sugars today, it's something I've done. It's something that's, that, that I could have prevented. When, in fact, your body is much more unpredictable than that. It's not going to be straightforward. 
I, I understand the, the positivity. I understand that sort of body consciousness and body health and diet focus and stuff like that. It's absolutely vital. It's and it's good to see people who are doing really well and having a good time and living their lives. At the same time, it shouldn't necessarily be that it's your fault if you have a bad day because you can manage it well and have a bad day. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I enjoy about the work that you're producing about your condition is that it isn't positive. It does kind of show some of the negative feelings and all of those kind of things, and it's very open about those. And I think that's that's good. It also occurs to me that ability to manage diabetes is also going to be affected by other things. So like class is going to play a role in that and like all of these other things that get in the way of us living our lives. You are somebody who's relatively privileged within the world. So managing your diabetes whilst really hard, it's not going to be as hard as for somebody else. If everybody judges those people on you, then that's going to be very unfair. If you take a worldview on this and you talk to some of the problems that people in America might have with uh, in a non-national health service and getting insurance and, and if you're a diabetic and you've got a, you've got a, a fatal disease and that's that's interesting and so yeah I'm I'm I've got to say that I am very lucky a to have been diagnosed b to have access to a national health service and 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 c even to, to get access to a drugs trial as well so yeah I mean and also like if you had another disability or another condition on top of diabetes then that would make it even harder like if you are somebody who has mental health issues you know all of those things I guess are going to really hurt I mean you already you've mentioned maths and maths isn't a strong suit for you and so that's a a thing that you've had to get your head around which other people wouldn't have a problem with right someone who's really good at maths they'd be like right okay I know how to do this no problem yeah my wife who is quite good at maths does does the sums a lot quicker and in strangely different ways to the way that I would even think about it, but which can actually be fr- quite frustrating as well. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Although it's interesting, you m- you're making connections to mental health because there are there are studies that that do show that people with chronic m- diseases as well are, are are likely to be subject to mental health problems as well. Yeah. So it's it's an area that I'm interested in in sort of exploring a bit further as well. For me, at the moment the psychological impact is much more about what may happen and trying to put yourself in a position where you, you can prepare for that at the moment I, I tend to think of it as, as, as the strain of trying to, to to manage so that it doesn't look like I'm managing right. it just looks like I'm being right. you know? yeah no right so if you want to know more about Spark London True Stories, go over to stories.co.uk. We also have a newsletter to keep you posted. There is a Facebook page for you to like that will also keep you updated. Or you can follow us on Twitter where we're at SparkLDN. And if you like true storytelling, then you might also be interested in another night that I co-produce which happens on the second Wednesday of every month at the Dog Star in Brixton. It's called Smut Slam and it's true stories about sex. And it's hosted by the amazing Miranda Kane and created by the also amazing Cameron Moore. There's prizes you can win. You win sex toys and you hear amazing stories about sex and sexuality. And the night is an inclusive one which welcomes everybody and every kind of story apart from stories which do not involve consent and apart from people who tell stories that kind of other other people in whatever way. So it's a night of stories about sex and sexuality but it's designed to be a night about consensual sex and sexuality and about 
positive expressions of sex and sexuality. Not necessarily positive stories, but positive expressions of sex and sexuality. It's a sex-aware night rather than a sex-positive night because it's complicated to feel positive about sex. Not everybody does, and we don't want to exclude people who don't. It is a night where we are trying to make the space as safe as possible. And so this is around the point in the show where I ask my guests to say goodbye to the audience. I'm going to say goodbye to you. But first, before I do, I'm going to throw a few more plugs for things that I do at you. So if you're interested in hearing about masculinity and what patriarchy does to men and to all people, then you might be interested in my solo show, What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity, which you can listen to for free as a podcast. And you can also read the survey of a thousand men's opinions about patriarchy and masculinity that I put together. You can find all of that stuff over on mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk or you can look for Stand Up Tragedy on iTunes and listen to the most recent podcast, which is a full version of that show. If you're interested in reading about me and my dad and our relationship and dementia and memory and time and history and politics and love and friendship and again a little bit about masculinity then check out my essay series down to a sunless sea memories of my dad do please check out The Family Tree. Season two is going to some really interesting places and we've worked out a plot for season three, which again is going to take it to some amazing places. So please do check out the show at thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk but also consider becoming a patron and contributing to our Patreon campaign and helping us to make the show because it does cost money to make the show it certainly costs a lot of time to make the show and we could really do with your support and even if you don't listen to The Family Tree consider becoming a patron to The Family Tree because if you listen to Getting Better Acquainted and you like what I do with this show then a way that you can give something back to me for all of the free content that I've given to you over the years is to support The Family Tree and help that show to grow. And finally, Getting Better Acquainted can be found anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet. It's on Twitter at GBA Podcast. The show's Facebook page is just Getting Better Acquainted. And if you want to email me about the show, you can do that at gbapodcast at gmail.co.uk. If you want to talk to me directly about things that I talk about on the show or about any of my other projects, you can find me on Twitter at goosefat101. And now it's time to say goodbye. So goodbye, everybody. Remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. <laughs>